What's going on guys? Welcome to another episode of Mind Fucked with Patrick James. Real quick, before we start this episode, I want to give a huge shout out to all the new people who have been subscribed to this channel ever since our first upload of the year about the Sphinx. Many of you guys have loved that video and many of you guys have given me a lot of constructive feedback and so we're definitely taking some time to apply that to future videos and trust me, our next one is going to be mind-blowing. But in the meantime, I've got a really exciting interview that I filmed not too long ago for you guys with a guy named Michael Stratt. Now, Michael, if you haven't seen him on episodes of Ancient Aliens or any UFO documentary, he is a military aerospace historian, and he spent much of his career studying famous UFO cases and UFO sightings. And what he has found is a very interesting pattern that shows that many of these UFOs may be man-made, no matter how remarkable the technology seems. And so in this interview, we actually go through many of these cases with documents and pictures of what these things actually looked like, and he points out some of the reasons why these may actually be man-made and why there might be a group of people on planet Earth who actually have access to this type of technology. Either way, I'm curious to hear what you guys think, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good to be with you. Awesome, man. Well, I didn't realize how deep a lot of this goes, and and more importantly, how much of the UFO sightings can be explained by military top secret technology that is actually man-made and not quite extraterrestrial. I'm just curious, where did your interest in the whole connection between the military and the UFOs take off for you? Mm, well, I used to live in Chicago for a good part of my life, and that allowed me to, to have access to the Oshkosh Air Show in Wisconsin. And so I went there for 27 years and was always interested in aviation and started putting some pieces together and uh, being close to QFOS, which is in also you know, in Chicagoland area, they have the largest collection of private UFO cases in the world, like 60,000 cases. So over a period of three years, they gave me access to the entire library and I just started digging through all the file cabinets every last manila folder. I literally went through every one of them. And uh, I picked out the ones that had a drawing, a sketch, an illustration, a three-page report, and like a flight path. Those are the ones I copied. And then from there, I did an AutoCAD rendering, and then I commissioned full-color artwork to make the cases come alive. And so I kind of, it's sort of my job to preserve an important part of our national history. And that's the goal behind this. I see. What was, so I'm curious, like, obviously you got access to all that, but what was like the motivation to just scour through all of these documents? Were you looking for something in particular? And sorry if you can hear my looking, dogs barking in the back. For the best sketches, the best illustrations and, you know, material that hadn't been seen for 40 years. And, you know, hopefully we'll cover a few of those tonight. Uh, but some of those files had just been forgotten. And they're just laying there. They're, they're dying to be resurrected and brought up to 2021 standards. And uh, certainly that's what we did here. So, yeah. I see. And then obviously, uh, somehow that also got into your interest in how this is connected to UFOs potentially. And so can you explain kind of your interest in the UFO, the, the UFO phenomenon and topic as well? Yeah, Was it I mean, from I a frame of just bunking? Patterns of recognition, certain things that seem to pop up again and again, like pipes on the bottom of these things, uh, protrusions sticking out, uh, low-frequency electrical humming noises. That, that keeps popping up again. Uh, we also get reports of just before these things take off, 
there's this high-pitched drilling noise that keeps popping up again and again. And when you start piecing this mosaic together, it certainly looks like some of this is perhaps man-made technology, you know, a lot closer to home. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and one of the things I had heard you talk about, and it was intriguing to me, especially like during these times, because I mean, you can only imagine, you know, all the all the the mainstream hype that's coming from the recently released Pentagon videos and stuff. Um, what do you make of all of those, like the the floating trying or was it pyramids that they were saying? In the sky. Yeah, um, I just don't know. I just don't know. I personally, I don't think it's alien. You know, what do I know, right? I, I just, I don't think it's alien. There's a history of pyramidal-shaped UFOs going back to '94, so it's not unprecedented. You know, but we we can't discount anything at this point. Yeah. Well, to me, it kind of seemed like um, those triangle-shaped ones, which I know that you've talked about as far as like the TR-3B and things like that, that have been cited and been reported as UFOs, but then, you know, you're able to follow a paper, paper trail somewhere and, and, you know, show that, hey, this is potentially man-made. Is that kind of accurate? Uh, I, th- I think if you, if you look at the eyewitness testimony, what they're actually reporting, and you match that up with other cases from different times and different locations. And when they all have that same common denominator, now you've got something to really look at. Now you've really got something to look at. And I want to cover a few of those tonight for sure. Okay. So what's one that really uh, intrigues you? Like the first case that if someone was like, tell me what you do, yeah. like this is the first one you'd go to. So I want to start here. Uh, let's see. Hopefully you can see this, okay? Yeah. It doesn't look like much, but this is an original sketch by a man named Eddie Laxton. He was a electronics engineer at Shepard Air Force Base. And, you know, this is his original sketch. It's very rough. It's, it's very grainy, and you, you can't really make out too much of it. But on the night of, uh, actually, it was the morning of March 23rd, 1966. It was about 5.03 in the morning. This is an official Project Blue Book report. So... I'm not making this up. You can go to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. and pull this up from the microfilms. It's, it's an actual case. It's, it was investigated. So this gentleman, he's driving down the road very early in the morning. It's still a little bit dark out. The sun is just popping up over the horizon. And all of a sudden, something is blocking the road, kind of parked at a 45-degree angle. So he pulls up in his car, and what he ends up seeing is this right here. He sees this bowling pin or something that looks like a fish or a perch just sitting there right on the road. And it was about 75 feet in length. It was about eight feet tall. It had uh, a bubble transparent canopy about, mm, you could say about three feet in diameter. Just after that, there were four high intensity white lights that were shining forward and down. And then on the starboard or right-hand side of the craft, there was an entryway hatch with an air stair door leading into the craft. Right next to that air stair door, there was a, what he called, this is Eddie Laxon speaking, he said that this was a, a, a man, a human being. He was wearing a two-piece green military fatigue. He had a baseball hat with the, with the uh, top of it, you know, the bill turned up. He was shining a flashlight near the bottom of the craft. 
And uh, there was also this spire that came from the top of the craft that kind of like tapered back to about a 12 inch diameter ball at the end of it. That's something I've seen about 12 different times now. We've seen these balls at the end of these spires. Then there was another three foot diameter porthole on the starboard side of the craft that was divided into four equal pie segments. And then aft of that, in black letters, there was the designation TL4768 written on the side of the craft. So I ask you, does this sound like an alien spacecraft? <laughs> Uh, okay, so moving further back, there was a little bit of uh, control surfaces at the back of the craft that were too small to be effective aerodynamically. So there's something going on with there. So what I ended up doing is I did an, an enhanced version of this sketch that he had created. So what happened next is as soon as the man that was shining the flashlight saw that he was being looked at by... <laughs> Eddie Laxton, he went up the air stair door, he closed the door, then there was this high-pitched drilling noise for about 15-20 seconds, then this thing levitated off the ground, stood there, hung in the air for about 30 seconds, and then shot off like a spark on a grinding wheel and made no sonic boom. And there were truck drivers that saw it too, so he wasn't the only one. So we had independent confirmation from the truck drivers. So this is all back in March 1966. And uh, I think it's a fantastic case. It's an official Project Blue Book case. And it really points to a man-made origin for this technology. I see. So this is one of those cases where, you know, I guess I, I'm just clarification on one of those details. When it's shot off, is it one of those examples where kind of like the tic-tac, he says it kind of just disappeared in like a split second? I think so. It was very quick. They clocked it at like 720 miles an hour. I'm not quite sure how they got that number, but that's what the Blue Book report says. But any way you cut it, it was blindingly fast from a dead standstill. And uh, at that level, you know, it's at ground level. The air is very thick at that level. So, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, transonic supersonic speed here. This thing made no sonic boom whatsoever. So someone's done something. And it's not the only one. Plus the truck driver saw it too. So it can't be easily discounted. Yeah. Um, and would you say that that would have to be some sort of gravitational wave propulsion versus just it, traditional? It could be a magnetohydrodynamic propulsion system. Okay. Uh, although is I, that like the spinning of, mercury that you talk about sometimes? Mm, I don't think that's going to the case on this one. But I'm sure that there's multiple ways to achieve this. And it looks like some kind of breakthrough was made in the mid 1950s. Um, I see. So, you know, just by going by eyewitness reports, it wasn't the, the first time this is seen. Other people saw it as well. And there's other craft that have these same spires and things sticking out of them. So that seems to be a repeating pattern as well. I see. Um, and, you know, on, and on top of like the architectural patterns, wouldn't just the, the letters on, that you can recognize as like English letters be a dead giveaway? Yeah, that's right. TL4768. To this day, since this happened, I haven't found anyone that has been able to identify what that means. It could be a nuclear code from AEC. I don't know. Mm. No one's been able to decipher what it means, so. 
Would it be, I mean, I'm just thinking back to like, you know, I grew up on lakes. Every boat had its like serial number, like planted on the side of it. Would it be something similar to that? You think? It's possible. It's possible. Uh, We just don't like, that's like, it it fascinates me because then you hear about these cases of, um, was it like Rendlesham forest where it comes down and like the writing on it is like hieroglyphic in nature. Is that Like, so what, what would you make of that? If you see, do you see cases like that where there are unrecognizable symbols? Some, sometimes we have symbols, not all the time. Like in Lani Zamora, we had a symbol there, but we don't get symbols too often or like serial numbers on these things. We don't mm-hmm. see that too often. I mean, it's not totally unprecedented, but it's kind of rare when we see that. Um, like mm-hmm. if it's an alien spacecraft, why do they need it? Why do they, why do they need lights, period? Why do they need, you know, symbols, letters, serial numbers, lights, anti-collision lights? They don't need any of that stuff, you know. So, mm. uh, something to consider. Something to consider. I see. Uh, and some, like, if, if that was 1966, yeah. Do you think that that is still a obviously? I would say at this point, from the way you laid it out, it seems pretty obviously man-made by someone somewhere. Um, right. If that was in 1966. Has the has there been like revealed technology that someone in the mainstream would have seen where we can say that we are that advanced, or is that kind of technology not even been released yet? I would say that a lot of that is kept under wraps, you know. And I suppose I'm limited on what I can talk about, but um, at the very least, yeah, obviously progression has been made. Things have progressed since 1966. To what level? Good question. You know, uh, I always ask the question, why are we still using liquid rockets? Why are we still using solid rockets? If we had this back in 66, why are, why are we going to the moon with Apollo 11 with liquid rockets when we've already got this? There's virtually no moving parts in this thing. Uh, there's no external tanks. There's no liquid oxygen. There's no liquid hydrogen. There's no mixing of volatile fuels. I mean, it just seems like such a joke to go this rocket route. Yeah. Uh, and I guess like, you know, what would the, the motivation be behind that? Would it be just from a, a strategic military advantage alone? Um, well, anyone who controls the high ground controls the war. So if you have a craft like this and it's outpacing any Soviet fighter, any MiG, any, you know, uh, then we, we've got them. We've got them. You know, what's the point of even bothering at this point? There's they're never going to be able to catch up to this thing because this thing could like turn on a dime, make 90 degree right angle turns. It, it could accelerate instantaneously. It could make dead stops. You can't do that with a conventional fighter. You just don't have that technology. So whoever's got this, they've already leapfrogged, you know, militaries around the world. They've already done that for sure. Yeah. And I, well, I feel like, you know, once that technology is out there, um, uh, at some point, doesn't everybody kind of start getting access to it and then it no longer becomes too much of an advantage, right? Mm, well, in this case, they're going to protect the crown jewels the most they can. They, they're not going to let it go for sure. Uh, I want to give you another example here. I've got okay. the report from APRO Bulletin. This is February 3rd, 1983. So this woman is driving down the road. She's returning from a dinner engagement. It's about 9 p.m., she hears this booming noise. So she pulls off to the side of the road. She looks under the vehicle. 
transmission was still there. Everything seemed to be okay. She goes another quarter mile ahead. There's a kind of an open area with a lighted section. And she sees to her shock and surprise, this 276 foot long craft that's about 80 feet tall. It looks like a ball with a tapering wedding cake as it goes toward the back end. On the upper section here, there was a transparent section that had wraparound glass to the forward one third of the craft. Inside this transparent section, see, she said that she could see what looked like humanoid beings that were five foot 10 inches tall. They were wearing a one piece tight fitting flight suit. Below that, there was another transparent section. Then she said she could see these protrusions sticking out of these six by six boxes. Um, I don't think they were guns, but it could be similar protrusion that we saw in this case in 1966. Below that, she said she could see a door that was closing from right to left. There was an asphalt road at the bottom. And then on the left-hand wall, she said she could see what looked like tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the side of the craft. That's something that pops up about 12 different times in all these different cases. We keep hearing about these Midas muffler tubes and silencers and pipes coming out of these craft. Below that, there were two gondolas on the bottom of the craft. And then she said that she could see those same humanoid beings that she saw on the upper section. And then connecting the bottom gondolas to the bottom surface of the craft, there were literally hundreds of these 24 inch by 24 inch highly polished mirror reflective you could call them polished metal or mirrors that were in the shape of a cross. And so this is back in 1983. And I've got another rendering over here. Gives you another idea. That's what this craft looked like here. Hmm. A massive craft. Now she said that this whole thing was held together by rivets, something you would see at the Golden Gate Bridge. So there's one point that doesn't sound alien. She also said that when she was below this thing, looking through these porthole windows, she could look through the entire craft to the other side. And on the inside, she said it looked like quote unquote, cross beam and girder construction, like a truss bridge or something you would see at a shipping yard with these bulkheads and beam, these, uh, you know, strong, very, you could say metallic, very uh, heavy beams that were crisscrossing. Uh, so again, a, a very good candidate for another man-made craft. Mm. Um, so a couple of thoughts come to mind when, when yeah. I, when you kind of detail that when she says humanoid, does she say humanoid because she wants to believe there's alien, they were aliens, but they were so far away. So I'm just going to say humanoid or those were humans or did they look different from human? Mm, right. I think it's more human than anything else. She, she said they didn't really have any hair but they looked human to her. There was nothing particularly alien about them. Although I think she did say mm. their heads were just a little bit larger, but they were humanoid looking. I see. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing is like, I guess this all also comes under the assumption, like if they were kind of from another planet or somewhere else, mm -hmm. then I guess, wouldn't it be feasible that they could potentially have technology that has recognizable, uh, recognizable aspects like pipes or stairs or roads, right? It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Mm. But again, if we're dealing with something that's a hundred million years ahead of us, why would they need a craft at all at that point? 
you know, certainly they wouldn't need rivets, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that just sounds like a dead ringer for man-made technology. But mm -hmm. it's, it's showing up in multiple cases. We can't deny it. I mean, it keeps on popping up. Uh, we'll consider another one here. This is late 1958, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. This involves the USS FDR. This is an original sketch. might be hard to see this, but this is an original sketch by the officer naval personnel that was here. Uh, 9 p.m., they're on kind of a shakedown cruise, and all of a sudden, now this is the first aircraft carrier to carry nuclear weapons on board. That's might be one reason why they had this sighting. But they noticed that there was a light approaching the aircraft carrier, and I'll try to zoom in even more here. And what they actually saw was a 200-foot-long cigar-shaped craft that hovered over the flight deck for about 10 minutes there were 24 naval personnel that scrambled up to the flight deck because it was like total chaos below decks. Everyone was trying to get up to the top. And when they got there, they saw this 200 foot long cigar shaped craft and it had these rectangular cutout windows. And then he said that they could see like humanoid looking beings walking back and forth <laughs> through these windows that they could see. And it's about 9 p.m. They, they could also feel the heat coming off this craft onto their faces and on their bodies. So it's actually a CE2 case because it had a physical effect. So it's a close encounter of the second mm -hmm. kind. So I went ahead and commissioned my friend Tom Bogan to do a full color rendering. And that's what you see right here. So you can see the aircraft carrier. You can see the flight deck area. And you can see this 200-foot-long cigar-shaped craft. And yeah. then he said that one of these beings kind of like pressed his face up against the window and was waving to the personnel below on the flight deck. Um, so we've huh. got that as well. That's what you see here. You can see this being waving back below onto the flight deck. But here again, there were multiple eyewitnesses and this case was talked about in a internal newspaper called Flat Top. It's all about aircraft carriers. So this was actually published in this newsletter. And this is late 1958, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And this thing is also silent as well? Uh, pretty much silent, yeah. There was no indication of any sonic boom as it departed. So another one of these silent craft. Mm -hmm. I see. When you hear cases like that, I guess <laughs> one of the things that I think about is if it's man-made, is that potentially scarier or you know something that blows my mind even more than if it was alien because in in that case what is, what are we capable of now if man had that in the 50s you know what i'm saying you're right i agree it is scarier than the alien question because of the implications of what that means yeah. even gordon what cooper some... had, the gordon cooper had talked about how we this is a direct quote from gordon cooper now i got this from daryl miklos that who was his best friend for I think five or seven years just prior to him passing. And Daryl Miklos told me that uh, Gordon said to him that we were a hundred years behind where we should be right now. We're a hundred years. He also said that we went to Mars in 83. I can't prove that, right? <laughs> it's secondhand dead man's testimony, but he said that we were to Mars in 1983. And he talked about a revolution in the transportation industry, a revolution in the shipping industry. He talked about brand new ways to build housing. Um, he asked the question, why are we still pounding nails into flat boards to build houses? We're, 
we've been doing this for 250 years or longer, you know, building houses with boards and lumber and pounding in nails. It's just, it's just so backwards technology. He talked about a, a revolution in, in uh, housing technology, but yeah, I mean, and again, this is Gordon Cooper. Uh, are we to take the testimony of our Mercury astronauts at face value? Do we trust them? I think we can, you know, they represent our highest quality witnesses. So I think it's important that we consider what they have to say. So Gordon Cooper, I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with that name. Uh, can you give me an explanation of like- Yeah, Gordon Cooper was a, uh, he's one of the seven Mercury astronauts. Uh, he was also a fighter pilot in 1951. He had an encounter. I actually did an illustration of that one too. He had an encounter in West Germany back in 1951. And it was the meteorologists that saw this first. They noticed that there were fleets of these flying saucers flying over his West German air base. And these things were like flying in formation. They were like 50 feet in diameter. They were silver polished discs. Gordon talks about this in his book, Leap of Faith. And he also talked about it at the United Nations. So it's a credible report. Uh, at one point on the second week of this happening, he told his wingman, this is Gordon Cooper, why don't we go see if we can intercept these? So they climb into the cockpit of their F-86. They go into 60 degree angle of attack. They're trying to chase these disks. And here's what we came up with. Here is Gordon Cooper and his wingman trying to intercept these disks. But I was told that they could get to the altitude, but they could not intercept these disks because these things could stop on a dime. They could make a 90 degree left-hand turn. They could go backwards. So any kind of attempted intercept was out of the question completely. Now, fast forward to 1957. Gordon Cooper is at Edwards Air Force Base. And during the setting up of precision landing equipment, um, something very interesting happened. Now, keep in mind, they've, they've, got, uh, they've got motion picture film cameras going. They've got everything. They're looking. They're, they're uh, recording these planes coming in for precision landing. All of a sudden, this 35-foot diameter dish-shaped craft hovers over the dry lake bed. It retracts these gears. It lands on the dry lake bed for about one minute, then hovers back up, retracts the gears inside, and then departs. And they got it all on film. They got it all on film. This is what it. One of these flying discs. Okay. That's what it looks like. So somewhere in the Pentagon basement vault, this motion picture film room, it exists. Uh, Gordon Cooper was told to develop the film. Do not run it through a projector, which he which he followed. And then a courier from, we believe, Andrews Air Force Base flew in immediately to Edwards Air Force Base. That film was put into a pouch. The pouch was handcuffed to this guy's wrist. And from that point forward, we have no idea where it disappeared to. So it's- that's, Do we know where the guy went though? Yeah. Do we, did, the guys, did the guy disappear as well? Oh, uh, you mean uh, the pilot the of the guy. Oh, the handcuff the guy? guy. We don't know where he went. We don't, he, he disappeared into that, that, you know, vault of somewhere, right? Either at uh, Holloman Air Force Base, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Andrews Air Force Base. We don't know. There is something at McDill Air Force Base as well. So I'm convinced that they're keeping this in more than one location because they can't afford a single point failure. If they have a fire and all these film canisters get destroyed, that evidence will be gone forever. So 
Personally, I think they made copies and they shipped it out to at least three different locations around the country. That's how I they should just do what everybody else does and just upload it to the cloud. You would think, right? Yeah, that's right. right. (laughs) Um, So when you hear about the landing gear or, and even hear, see the illustrations, do you immediately go, all right, man-made or no? Difficult to say. Difficult to say. Seems to be leaning toward that, but uh, it, it was a display of some kind because the film cameras were running. So it's like it wanted to be seen. Whoever built it, it wanted to be seen. I see. Um, so, um, crap, I, I lost it. <laughs> I lost. <laughs> All right. So, uh, this is what I, what I was going to ask is um, yeah. I've heard about another footage and I'm not sure if it's the same incident, but wasn't okay. there footage of a potential meeting where the, they, they knew this flying saucer was going to come in and there was a, a recording of it. And then the camera guy had it and then they borrowed it, took out the part where it landed and then gave it back to him. Is that the same footage? Well, there's been alleged uh, meetings, uh, I think 1954 at Edwards Air Force Base with President Eisenhower. Now that's never been proven. That's never been proven. That's legendary status. May or may not be true. Um, The only thing I would say about that is I interviewed a woman whose father was high-level military brass, kind of within the same time frame. She told me that when his wife passed away, he was shattered. He was just shattered. And this kind of like wore on him for a year. He was just so upset that his wife was no longer with him that he started opening up. And one day he was crying uncontrollably. And the woman that I interviewed came to her father and said, what are you crying about? And he said, you know, I, I miss my wife so much. I, I, I just, I can't get over it. I'm so upset about it. And then like the topic of extraterrestrials and UFOs came up. And this guy told the woman that I interviewed, all he would say is, quote unquote, a handshake has been made. And that's all he would say. And that tracks with what we hear about Edwards Air Force Base and Eisenhower, where a quote-unquote agreement was made. Now, I don't know if it's the same event. could be something different. But coming from her, I trust her. So there could be something there. I can't prove a link between the Edwards encounter or at Holloman, but something appears to have happened like in the mid-1950s, early 1960s, between our high-level military brass and possibly an ET race. Difficult to say, but bottom line is this guy said that a quote unquote handshake has been made. So contact has been made according to this guy, probably 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. Isn't it crazy how we can, we can, uh, you know, put someone away for murder based off of eyewitness testimony, but this stuff, because it's so outside of our realm of reality, it seems like it gets ignored. One of the things that, you know, I'll be honest, I'm relatively new to the whole alien rabbit hole. Admittedly, I am self-employed, so I have I have the disposable time to go further down oh, yeah, than some yeah. people. But what yep. what got me, because here's the thing, I grew up thinking flying saucers were a thing of the gen, of the Jetsons. And uh-huh. I thought it was just, I always assumed growing up that if, if I saw an alien spacecraft, it would look like the thing from uh, Independence Day. Now, sure. uh, that said, for some reason, I started watching Ancient Aliens like a couple of years ago, 
And it kind of got me thinking. And I think the Bob Lazar interview on Joe Rogan is what did it for me. And so I did a quick Google search and I typed in uh, flying saucer CIA, something like that. Mm -hmm. And what blew my mind is that the CIA has documents you can access on their website of just like pictures of all these aircraft, flying saucers and whatnot. Now, whether that means they're ET or man-made, I, I can't say, but it, it added credibility to where I started going deeper. And then another thing is like when I heard about the TR-3B at Astra, type it in and I can find a patent for it on Google. Why is this stuff not being talked about more often? Uh, good question. Good question. But one way I would answer that is of course, this story is so outlandish, right? I mean, it has its own self-protection system built into it, right? An alien, a UFO lands at, a, at a Edwards Air Force Base. They, they capture it on film, and then this cigar-shaped craft hovers over an aircraft carrier. Nah, come on. you got to be kidding me. You know, no one's going to believe it anyway, right? Because it's just so crazy. So you can see why the giggle factor is still in place. Even in 2021, the giggle factor is still in place because this story is so large, it's so all-encompassing, it's just so incredible to believe it has its own self-protection system built into it. So they don't need to cover anything up. They don't need to do anything. It has its own protection system built into it. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's also because the media has done such a good job through movies and stuff to make it a thing of the movies, right? Exactly, exactly. So I so want to cover I guess, another case here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is September 10th, 1976, Calusa, California. It's 11:30 p.m. And this gentleman is watching TV, and all of a sudden, the TV conks out completely. The air conditioning conks out completely. So he goes back to the back end of the house. He opens up the circuit breaker box, look, you know, to see if there's anything wrong with the circuit breaker. Everything seemed to be okay there. As he's walking back into his house, he notices that, oh my goodness, the hair on this guy's head, it starts to stand up straight. The hair on his arms is standing up. The hair on his chest is standing up. Not only that, it's crackling, okay? So here he is, here he is. And when he looks up, he sees this 140 foot diameter dish shaped craft that has a very interesting dome on top. Now, you've seen those lemon squeezers where it has those ridges on it. That's what the dome looked like on this craft. So it looked like a lemon juice squeezer or a lemon squeezer. Now, on the bottom of this thing, it had six of these conduit pipes that tapered down to frayed edges. And it also had these prongs that were sticking down. And while all this is going on, because this whole localized area had kind of a static electrical field, he looked off to the left. And he could see two more of these craft that were identical to the large one, but were half the size. And they were pulling power off the 500,000 volt power lines, causing them to become cherry red. So the fact that the power lines were affected and the hair on his body was affected makes it a CE2 case. It's a close encounter of the second kind. At this point, these conduit pipes retract into the bottom of the craft. And you can see it better here. And these claw-like devices, they also retract. At that point, these gooseneck lights pop out on either side. At this point, he's getting really scared, okay? So he goes into his house, and he wakes up his wife and his two kids. They go to the back room, and here they are right now. 
they open up the window, they pull back the blinds, and they see that large craft in the backyard flanked on either side with the two smaller craft, and they're pulling power off the 500,000 volt power lines, causing them to become cherry red. Now, this is all going, so keep in mind, this is all going on in 1976. All right, now, next thing that happened is the large craft in the center, it goes from a dead standstill to just hovering over these low hills in the background that are 24 miles away. It does it in less than one second and then comes back in less than one second. So it had traversed 50 miles total in less than two seconds. Who had the technology to do that back in 1976? And there was no sonic boom whatsoever, whatsoever. Uh, I've got a drawing of what this craft looked like here. So just no sonic boom idea. has to almost imply that it was anti-gravity, right? Because it's not going through well, the air, right? It's, it, was, it wasn't using conventional aerodynamics that we know of. This is what the craft looked like here. You can see these conduit pipes sticking down. All right, so at this point, the husband is saying to himself, you know what, I got to protect my family here. We need to get out of here immediately. So he packs up his kids. They're, they're still in their pajamas. They're still sleepy. Uh, he, he, you know, grabs his wife, piles everybody into the pickup truck. They start going 90 miles an hour down the road. This is what it says in the report. I've got the five-page report. They're going 90 miles an hour down the road. This large craft that was in the background starts chasing them in their pickup truck. Goes over to the left-hand side of the pickup truck, over the cab, over to the right-hand side, then back up over to the left-hand side. They go about a mile down the road at 90 miles an hour. They get to the neighbor's house. They screech on the brakes. They all pile out of the truck. They start slamming on the door of the neighbor's house. Two neighbors pull out, uh, get out of the house, and they see the very tail end, all six eyewitnesses. So you've got the father, you've got the wife, you've got the two kids, plus the two additional witnesses. That's a grand total of six. They see the large craft departing, uh, kind of a 60 degree angle of attack. And so this is all back in 1976. And they were so fearful. They thought they were fearing for their lives. They were just in such panic. So again, someone's building this in 76 that had the technology to go supersonic without any kind of sonic boom back in 76. Wow. So when you are doing all this research, and obviously a lot of these cases, um, I'm, I'm sure you've had a lot of time to mentally process these. Do you lean sure. on the side of complete skeptic that they are extraterrestrial, or do you believe that there is an extraterrestrial element to this? Um, personally, I think there's a man-made element to this. I also think that there is a pre-existing high-tech civilization mixed into this. And then I think the third prong of this phenomenon is an interdimensional phenomenon. So when you mix those three together, it could be a possible explanation for a majority of these sightings. Um, mm. Even Jalen Hynek said that if UFOs were nothing more than extraterrestrial spacecraft visiting Earth, it'd be so boring because this phenomenon is much larger than that. Real quick, if you were enjoying this episode of Mind Fucked, I have a handful of these interviews I've already filmed and I've uploaded a lot of them to my Patreon already. The link of that is in the description if you wanna go check those out. Either way, I'm gonna be uploading these throughout the course of the next few months on the normal YouTube channel. So if you wanna get early access, hop on over to the Patreon. Now back to the interview. The advanced pre-existing civilization, that one fascinates me because that's one that mm -hmm. I haven't 
quite heard talked about a lot, but ironically, the last podcast guest I had on also said he believes that there are ancient civilizations that were here on earth. So you're yeah. saying that some of these might still be here, like potentially inner earth or underwater? Sure. sure. Yeah, because the Condon report that was released to the public in 1969, which Jacques Vallée had talked about, out of all the cases they considered, they didn't consider one USO case, but USOs represent 51% of this phenomenon. So how can you have an objective report where you're claiming to discredit UFOs, you're trying to explain them all away, yet you haven't even looked at 51% of the whole phenomenon and you're claiming you know what's going on? It's a total joke. It's a total joke because we've got so many cases of USOs bursting out of the oceans right next to military cruisers and then going off into space. Uh, do they displace water these. when they do it? Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's boiling water. There's rings of water as these things are popping out. We've got cases in 1956 where bullet-shaped USOs, unidentified submerged objects, and we want to reference Ivan T. Sanderson, Invisible Residence. I challenge anyone who is a skeptic about this subject, I challenge you to read that book over a one weekend time period. You go to the what beach. Is the book again? Go, it's called Invisible Residence by Ivan T. Sanderson. It's all about credible U.S. Navy USO reports. There's in Japan, there's in, all around the world, there's these USO reports. In that book, it talks about how there was a USO report where a 200 foot long bullet shaped craft punched through 37 feet, not 37 inches, 37 feet of solid ice and then went right off into space back in 56. And when it did that, these huge chunks of ice were flying off into the sky and then slamming down. And then when they got to where this thing popped out of the ice, it made this perfect carved ring circle and there was boiling water where this thing departed. And it's, it's, it's being reported by the U.S. Navy. Are these sightings still happening? Because it seems like a lot of the sightings that we do talk about are decades ago, right? So That's why true, is it the, then that there is a stoppage of this? Yeah, Preston Dennett can tell you that the USO reports off the coast of Catalina Island are still ongoing. Yeah, the USO reports, they've, they've never stopped. But uh, getting back to the book, um, anyone who's objectively looking at this and reads that book over the weekend, you will absolutely walk away a 100% believer that the USO reports the phenomenon is real. No question about it. No question about it. I see. If they are potentially pre-existing advanced civilizations, one, why are they pre-existing? And would that make them separate from us? Would that make them the same from us? And what would be the motivation for keeping themselves separate from us? Good question. I don't know the answer to that. You would think by now they would have showed themselves and made content. Maybe they're just observing us. Mm. Maybe they're just trying to monitor what we're doing with our military. Um, it certainly looks like they have the technology to shut down our ICBM silos. And that happened in the seventies. We've got reports in sixties and seventies of that going on. So it looks like they can render our nuclear weapons completely useless if they wanted to. Um, mm. But it doesn't look like there's a threat because if there was a threat, they would have done it by now. Yeah. I promise you'll still be able to scroll on Instagram tomorrow, most likely. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So I guess uh, another, you know, the interdimensional, that's one that I also feel like doesn't get mentioned as much as either. And mm-hmm. that concept is something that I, I don't even know how to wrap my head around. What is interdimensional and what do you suggest that some, there could be an interdimensional element to this? Well, if, if we just look at our visible wavelength of light that we can see, if, you know, there's so much more because you've got the infrared part of it as well. So even just looking at it through our own eyes, we're only seeing a fraction of what's out there. You know, that's why we have these radio space telescopes and things that are super chilled down and they can look through the infrared and they can see things too. So that might explain some of these interdimensional craft that are coming in. We just can't see that wavelength and it's certainly a possibility, but it it can't be denied because these cases go back a lot earlier than June 24th, 1947 with Kim Darnold. They go back prior to the 1943-44 reports of Foo Fighters on both the Allied and Access side. If you just keep on pushing this back, we've got cases from Christopher Columbus, 1492. He had a sighting. That's 1492. Keep going back further than that. We've got papyrus writings from ancient Egypt. We've got the cases in Rome where they saw flying shields. So now we're looking at 2000 BC, 2500 BC. We're, We're further going back. It's been going on for thousands of years. We just can't claim that it's a man-made technology. We can't claim that it's something new. It looks like it's been here for thousands of years. Yeah. So when you say interdimensional, and then you t- talk about like the the parts of the the spectrum, the ultraviolet spectrum, yep. right? Radio magnetic. What is it? The electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see. Um, so interdimensional just means not within the visible light, or does it mean like no, Dr. Strange popping into another universe? It could be a different wavelength. It could be a different wavelength that's partially transparent into our dimension. And they have the act, they have a, vis, a capability to access, you know, our dimension. Uh, difficult to say, hey, I'm not a theoretical physicist. I can't tell you, but these things, they appear to be able to, Number one, they can come and go as they please. They can materialize and dematerialize as they please. They've been seen going inside and out of oceans as they please. They've even been seen flying into the side of mountains with no impact. So that doesn't sound like a metallic craft, right? I mean, there's cases of these things flying right into the side of mountains, a solid rock. (laughs) Yeah. So they they could even look solid and go into something solid. That's exactly right. That's exactly. And, and they can just materialize and dematerialize as they please. Like they're playing with us. They're toying with us, you know? Mm. Um, one question that I've pondered uh, in the past is what would be a scarier reality? The fact that they are interdimensional, meaning they're in this physical point in space at a different wavelength or that they are from a different galaxy, right? Because if they're not from another galaxy, then then does that mean that we have a bleak future for intergalactic travel, you know? All I can say is if you look at the visible universe, you look at our Milky Way galaxy, um, we've we've got uh, 400 billion stars in our known galaxy. There's 400 billion galaxies in the known universe. And then that famous Hubble, you've probably seen this image before, where the Hubble Space Telescope, it's directed its mirror and camera to a portion of the sky that they felt was completely black. So they just aimed it, they set the gyros. I think they set it on there for an entire week and this was like a completely black part of the sky. 
when they got the film developed later that came down digitally, what they thought was just completely black space, there were thousands of galaxies within that photo that they'd never seen before. So they're just keep on pushing that timeline back. Um, yeah, there's so much more that we don't know. Yeah, crazy. Um, so have you ever personally experienced anything that you can't explain? Nope, I haven't. I'm not that lucky. I haven't seen one of these things. I want to see one. I haven't seen yeah. one. No. How about you? <laughs> I actually have. Uh, and this is yeah. why the interdimensional topic uh, intrigues me. Um, and, it, and it's something I've talked about on my podcast before, but so I'll quickly kind of go into it. But I've seen a being that I thought I thought it was crazy. Um, but it kind of looked like a typical men in black type of, sh uh, it was a shadow figure, but it had a top hat and a trench coat figure. And I would see it in my window in this room that always gave me bad vibes in a house that we moved into when I was in high school. And it would stand there in the window that was 20 feet off the ground with the shadows of the trees moving behind it. But this thing was just fully erect standing there, top hat, trench coat. It was there every night. And it, I could only, it was only visible to me when all the electronics were off in the room. So as soon as I turn off the TV at night, I can see it. Um, anyways, I would, I would see it so often. And then I, I would be afraid to tell people. And the, I always got the vibe that if I told someone about it, then it would, it would not show itself. Right. And so after three years of studying the trees outside, seeing this thing every night, sleeping with the TV on to avoid it, um, I would, um, I finally told my friend or, and wanted to show it to him to, to prove my, I wasn't crazy. Long story short, I tried to show it to him. It wasn't there. Haven't seen it since until, um, I saw a documentary as I was going through Amazon prime called the hat man. And it was about all these people experiencing these, this same thing, the exact same thing I saw, but here's, what's crazy in the documentary the picture, the illustration was to the detail proportion for proportion, the exact same thing I saw in the same nature. I saw it. And then recently I met a friend, uh, whose girlfriend had seen this thing in her house and I sent her the picture and she goes, Oh my God, same thing. And her mom was actually physically assaulted by this thing. So when I talk, when I hear about interdimensional, I think the top hat trench coat, maybe it's like a tool to go between dimensions. Cause I don't think that's a ghost but anyways, um, yeah, talking about things that I can't explain. Sure, sure. Yeah, you I mean, you never know what these, uh, we've got re reports of these strange beings that look like, you know, the Oscars that they give away on Sunday night at the Oscars. We've got a, uh, a Michelin man being that looks like an Oscar that you would get in an award ceremony. I, I kid you not. Maybe we'll talk about that one. Uh, let's move on to this next case. This is Falcon Lake, Canada, May 19th, 1967. This is the famous Stephen Mikulak case. All right, so here's the sighting picture here, so you can this in your mind's eye. Uh, he's a rock hound. He's a prospector. He's got a very heavy shirt on. He's got jeans on. He's got these thick leather gloves on. He's got a welder's goggle on so that it doesn't you know, injure his eyes when he's chipping for minerals and everything. So that's kind of like the sight picture. All of a sudden, two 40-foot diameter dish-shaped craft are hovering at about a 200-foot altitude. One departs at a medium rate of speed. The other one lands about 300 yards from where he is. So he walks up to this craft. This is what the craft looked like. He's walking up to the craft, and he notices that, you know, this thing is 
very close to him now, so he gets even closer. And then a door or hatch opens at the bottom of the craft. He also notices that just to the right of this opening, there's this, uh, what you could call exhaust vent that had these evenly drilled holes, like someone took a drill and measured two and a half inches by two and a half inches and did a perfect grid pattern to it. So he's walking up to this hatch and he kneels down. He's looking in this hatch now and there's this violet purple light coming out of this thing. He can hear laughter. He can hear a language that he can't understand. And so he's saying, do you speak German? Do you speak French? Do you speak American? There was no answer. There was just this laughing and this strange language that he couldn't figure out. At that point, this hatch slammed shut. And he thought, wow, that's rude. So, so he couldn't see anything or he could just hear the voices? He could, he could hear the voices. He couldn't see anybody, but he could hear okay. the voices. So here he is looking into the craft. All of a sudden, this thing slams shut. And then this craft lifts off the ground at about one foot altitude, makes this counterclockwise movement. And that small exhaust port with the evenly drilled holes lines up with him. And somehow there's this exhaust gas that comes out and burns him. His clothes catch on fire and uh, he's injured. So it's a CE2 case and uh, he gets sick. He starts vomiting. And what happens later on when he's sent to the hospital, the, the whole pitch pattern on that exhaust port made a complete perfect imprint onto his chest. The exact same holes that were on that exhaust port end up turning up on his chest. So it's absolutely a solid CET case. This is kind of a rough newspaper article, but here he is, Stephen Mekalik, and that's his drawing of what the craft looked like. And uh, it's a very well-known case. And he recently died not too long ago. And to this, to the day he died, he claimed that it was a real encounter. Huh. Have you uh, seen any cases or, you know, uh, looked into any cases where it's actually CE3? Like is CE3 where they, there's physical contact made? CE3 is when there is a, vis uh, a visible contact with an ET or extraterrestrial being, you can call it. So it's when you meet them is what they say. So yeah, we've Are got there some not a whole lot of those. Yeah, we've got some CE3 cases as well. And I want to cover that right now. This is the Socorro, New Mexico, April 24th, 1964. This is with Lonnie Zamora. So here's the sight picture. Lonnie Zamora is chasing the speeder. All of a sudden, he sees this strange white egg-shaped craft fly nearby. It has kind of a flame by it. It lands near a dynamite shack. So he thought, wow, maybe there's some kind of explosion going on. Maybe something must be happening, some kind of accident. So he gives up chasing the speeder. Now, five minutes before all this is happening, this craft, which we believe to be the same exact craft, comes flying right over this family in their car. They're on a vacation. And this thing flies over their, the hood of their car at like one foot altitude. They go into the police uh, station and they, they file a police report. And in the police report, it's, it's stated that the father and husband, the family member, told the police officer that you guys really fly your aircraft low around here, don't you? 
I mean, it's just a funny little comment, but it's in the police report. Anyway, getting back to Lonnie Zamora. This craft lands in kind of a hilly area that's rocky. He, he had a little bit of a difficulty navigating in his squad car to get to the location. He goes over a hill and when he sees kind of near this dynamite check area, he sees this egg shaped craft. It's propped up on four landing gear legs, something that you might see off the lunar lander during the yeah. Apollo missions. Now keep in mind, this is Socorro, New Mexico. This is, within five miles of the north perimeter of White Sands Missile Range. I think that's a clue right there. I mean, literally within a stone's throw of White Sands Missile Range. Okay, so he gets, now the Blue Book report said he got within like 300 feet of it. New information from Ben Moss in his new book about this entire setting. He claims that he got within 24 feet of this thing. All right, so it had a hatch on one side, it also had what looked like small statured humanoid looking beings that were wearing these one piece tight fitting white flight suits. So here is that flight suit again. At this point, um, these beings, they went inside this craft and there was this banging noise, like someone was closing a hatch door. Five seconds later, there was another banging noise like someone was engaging a latching mechanism. That sounds very man-made to me. At this point, there was a very loud roar and he could see a blue colored flame come from the bottom of this thing. So the next thing he did is that he started running away from this thing because he thought it was gonna blow up. So he jumps for the ground near his squad car. He loses his glasses and he sees this thing take off from the ground. It has a blue colored flame at the bottom. It's making this roaring noise. The, the flame stops and this craft is just hovering there now. And then it kind of like slowly departs at a medium rate of speed. This is all back in 1964, near within like five miles of White Sands missile range. Now, here is the alleged, I say alleged symbol that Lonnie Zamora saw on the upper portion of the craft itself. Now, I can tell you that for the past 60 years or so, we've been led down a certain path that this is not correct. The actual symbol, according to Ben Moss, looks a lot more, and I do wanna bring up something else as well. <laughs> I do wanna bring this up. If you look at the implant or impression that the landing gear pads made into the soil, it kind of looks like the top of a barn. It has this pointed ridge at top and everything. It has these 90 degree corners. So isn't that funny? We've got an alien spacecraft that has 90 degree corners, very sharp edges. And if you do a drawing of what that looks like, you can see here, does this look like the landing pad from an alien spacecraft? <laughs> uh, this, this looks more like a test vehicle that went off the range. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is the actual insignia that was on the side of the Lani Zamora craft. This has been certified uh, by the last eyewitness who was there at the time. Lani's long gone now, but this appears to be the actual rendering of what was seen by Lani Zamora back in 64. So the original drawing of the symbol, wouldn't you think that the, the the mo most accurate depiction would be the one taken immediately at the time. How, how was so. it changed? That's exactly what I post to Ben Moss as well. I'm like, why would Lonnie Zamora put his name 
on a sketch that he did of that symbol on the side of the graph. I was told that Lonnie Zamora was told to put that on his sketch so that when other people could come forward, they could verify their sighting. Because if, if they said that they saw the same thing, then they would know that's wrong because they already knew what the actual symbol was. It was a little confusing to me too. So I posed that question to Ben Moss. That's what he told me. So apparently this was an avenue by the Air Force and investigators to vet out other eyewitnesses that may have seen this craft. But I just point out the fact that number one, it made a blue colored flame. Now that's not liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen. That's something else, okay? You don't get a blue colored flame uh, using that. That's, that's a different propulsion system. It, it made a loud roaring noise, okay? It had, a, it had small statured humanoid looking beings on it. It was in, within five miles of the perimeter north portion of White Sands missile range. That tells you something. And the fact that it had landing pads that had sharp 90 degree corners on it. No, I don't think we're looking at an alien spacecraft because if you look at nature, nature almost never has sharp right angle corners. Almost never. You can look at pine cones. You can look at ocean waves. You can look at anything having to do with the Fibonacci ratio. It's always a beautiful curve to it. You don't see these 90 degree corners. That's a dead ringer for a man-made technology. So when you say man-made, it yeah. doesn't necessarily imply made by Americans or something. It could be man-made on another planet, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Mm, no, I'm thinking it's right here. I'm thinking it's right here. And just because the Air Force doesn't know what it is doesn't mean it's not one of ours, you know, because there's a lot of other agencies out there, like the Atomic Energy Commission. That's where I think a lot of this lies. So know? then, so I guess, then what do you think the blue flame could have been? Because you say it's not this, it's not that, then, then what would it be? <laughs> Good question. It's a nuclear rocket. It's an atomic rocket. Because by 1961, the Atomic Energy Commission, the U.S. Navy, and the U.S. Air Force spent $990 million on atomic rockets, nuclear rockets, uh, you know, rockets that had a, a nuclear combustion area. And when you have a nuclear rocket, you have a blue flame. You don't have an orange flame like the shuttle. This is something completely different, you know. And the fact that there were two banging noise noises heard before this thing lift off sounds to me like they were engaging this propulsion system and then this thing took off we always hear about this high-pitched buzzing drilling noise that's something we hear too so when you put it all together to me it sounds like the explanation is a lot closer to home than we think so then what about the humanoid then the the small i think they were small humanoid. statured test pilots because this was a relatively small craft maybe 16 feet across it wasn't really mm -hmm. big maybe the size of a little bit larger than a VW, something just a little bit bigger than that egg-shaped craft. Same egg-shaped craft was uh, also seen in Roswell too, because that was an egg-shaped craft as well with a dome on top. So this egg-shaped thing keeps popping up again and again. So the Roswell was not a flying saucer shape, it was an egg shape? No, no. If you, if you uh, read Don Schmidt's new book, Don Schmidt will tell you that what was recovered was an egg-shaped craft, not a flying saucer. I see. Uh, and I've heard most people assuming it was aliens. I've mm -hmm. only heard one person mention that he thinks it was man. And that person 
said it it was Nazis. He thinks it was Nazis. What is your stance on the the Roswell well, incident? What I try to do, I try to exhaust every terrestrial explanation before we start jumping on the ET bandwagon. Mm -hmm. I mean, just just look at the technology: pipes, cylinders, serial numbers, flashing lights. Not not only flashing lights, but flashing lights that go off in sequence, right? Blues, greens, reds, yellows, orange, and then the pattern repeats. Even Stanton Friedman knew that, you know, lights on an ET spacecraft make no sense at all. It can only be for decoration. Why do they need it? it it's screaming man-made technology, but it's important that we pull up these old cases so that we lay this foundation. Well, I guess the, so, so is lights to you a dead giveaway that it is potentially man-made if there's flashing lights on it? I think it is because not only is it just the lights, but the lights are going off in a, in a sequence and then they repeat the sequence. That just doesn't sound alien. Why would they need it? Why would they need an anti-collision light? Why do they need lights at all? <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Um, now I want to go over another case here. This goes to credit Linda Zimmerman who is a very good researcher on the East Coast. She gave me this case. So this is Socrates, New York, June 1953. There's about 24 eyewitnesses. They see this long, 350-foot-long cigar-shaped craft. It has these concentric rings of turquoise and red balls going around the axis of the craft. This is what it looks like. And uh, it was a huge craft. They, they sh sent up interceptors to go after this thing. Not a chance. This thing left the fighters in the dust completely. So someone back in 1953 had the technology to outpace our top fighter aircraft at the time. Here's the drawing I came up with, what this thing actually looks like. And you can see the 100-foot uh, the uh, section here, but then the 300 feet, 350 feet on the bottom of the craft along the total length of it. This is back in 1953, this is going on. This is actually happening. You can't just mm -hmm. deny 24 eyewitnesses. She interviewed, I think one of the last surviving witnesses. And uh, it was just a guy who was just coming forward. He had no point of seeking fame or fortune, but he said that when these jets got within the vicinity and chasing after this thing, this thing just took off and left them in the dust. Mm. So is that another one where you still think that it is most likely made by human? I don't know, because this one looks seamless. There were no rivets. There didn't appear to be any in entry hatches. Uh, there weren't any lights on the craft, but these balls were lighted that were along the axis of the craft. Those were kind of like red and turquoise blue-green. That's what the eyewitness said. But And this thing was 350 feet across back in 53. So... Difficult mm -hmm. to say. Now, it could be one of ours because that kind of tracks with the timeline, but that's a little bit earlier. If you go back to maybe some of the German research, there could be a German contingent to this because that, that just keeps on popping up as well, right? Because after World War II, uh, a lot of our scientists that started our space program were at one time, you know what, they had their records expunged. They were brought to here. And then immediately after World War II, there was another component that went to South America um, in, in Brazil. That's a whole different story. But it's interesting that immediately after World War II, and then like in the 45, 46, 47 timeline, a whole bunch of UFO sightings 
originated out of, out of Argentina, South America, just exactly where these guys went. It sounds like something may have been set up. Difficult to make that complete link, but we can't deny it. I see. Um, and then, you know, you know, along that, those lines, what do you make of project? Is it high jump where they went to Antarctica and then came back completely yeah. depleted? That's another mystery case too, right? Because they were supposed to be there for six weeks. I think they were, or six months and they were beaten back very quickly. They lost a number of aircraft. Uh, there are reports that Admiral Byrd encountered craft that uh, came off the ice some of these things uh, came from the you know, depths of the ocean. He actually made contact. That's where the story gets crazy. But Operation Hijack, to this day, has not been completely explained properly, in my eyes, anyway. It's never what been are some of the explained. unexplainable things that, yep. like, what, what is public about that, that case? Just, just that Admiral Byrd uh, was at the, you know, he was spearheading the whole thing. They had, like, 12 naval ships. I think they had... 4,000 personnel there. They had aircraft, they had twin engine and observation aircraft, and they were allegedly beat back by someone or something, and they just left. And it was supposed There's to no be a exploratory mission. And there was nothing else given about it. There was nothing else said. So something happened there. We just don't know what it is. I see. Uh, another note that I made watching uh, a documentary where you're giving a, a, a vast presentation of a lot of these sightings was um, you were talking about the Phoenix Lights, and I'm obviously located in Phoenix, so it's it's relevant. Yeah. And I'm actually by South Mountain where all of the the majority of the sighting was. And you mentioned something like it could have been a holographic pro projection of some sort. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, there's been reports of, you know, holographic image projection technology where you can have an aircraft that projects an image of another aircraft that looks identical to the first one, but it's a complete hologram. And they can do that by heating up the air molecules and using that as a projection screen. So you could have a uh, F4 Phantom you could have any type of aircraft uh, that looks completely real, but there's nothing there. Now that's a possibility. The other thing is it was, it was on a Thursday night. March 13th, 1997 was a Thursday night. And we know they like to test things on a Thursday night. So that checks out. Mm -hmm. There are others who say that they could look through the craft. So that kind of checks out. Um, I interviewed a gentleman who said it got so close to him that he could hit it with a softball. That checks out because we've had reports from 83 where people who have seen this craft come close to them, they also said that they could get close to it and hit it with a softball. So that checks out. When you put it all together, we could be looking at another man-made technology. Um, it, it's looking like it more and more, you know, not in all cases because these prehistory cases, 1865 cases, they actually could be a man-made technology too. But when you go back to Rome and Egypt, now we're pushing the envelope. Now we're yeah. looking at something different. Unless, well, wouldn't it be conceivable that if you have the ability to warp gravity, you could also yeah. travel back in time? Uh, now you're really getting into it. Yeah. They could be <laughs> us from our future. They could be us from our timeline going back in time to the 1860s. Because if you can control gravity, you can control time. Mm, yeah, it starts getting a little hairy there. I'm no expert in time travel, but... Yeah, this, there's any number of avenues this could go down, uh, because if you look at the 1897 mystery airship wave, 
what the people reporting in 1897 is exactly what people are reporting in Oaxaca, Mexico in 1865. And this is long before the Wright brothers flew on December 17th, 1903 at Kitty Hawk. So it looks again like someone's building something way before powered flight. Mm. One question I've always wondered is why are some of these older uh, illustrations um, from like the 1800s, sometimes these UFOs look like wooden ships in the sky with a floating balloon above it. Why is it that the UFOs almost always seem to be like slightly Archaic. ahead of the time it was seen? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, we can definitely talk about the 1897 mystery airship wave. It actually took place in 1896. And this was essentially in Sacramento, California. It also went to Oakland, California, and then San Francisco, California. What they reported seeing is this flying craft that had a gondola that was kind of like supported by a balloon. And then it had a wing on either side. It had a tail-like rudder. But then hundreds of eyewitnesses reported that, this is kind of hard to see, but they reported these high-intensity beaming spotlights that were shining down. And so there was like chaos in the streets and the towns. There were people running, they were screaming, there were horses bolting from side to side, there were covered wagons that were flipping over, and people just didn't know what was going on here. But they keep, here's another rendering of what these things look like. These strange airships that appeared like out of nowhere. We have reports, and this is, uh, Walter Bosley wrote a whole book on these things. The eyewitness reports, came from the West Coast all the way to Chicago, all the way to uh, the Ohio, state of Ohio, it reports there. According to Walter Bosley, some of these craft contain what looked like quote unquote, well-dressed eccentric inventor type. They were wearing a three-piece suit with a top hat. We also have reports that were, there were big black dogs on the deck of these, that, that just doesn't sound alien to me. We also have reports of laughter coming from these craft. And then we have reports of anchors on lines coming down from these craft and very few reports, about two or three reports of these things landing in the daytime where the eyewitnesses that got up to these craft, and this is kind of another rendering of what these things look like. They said that the quote unquote pilots that were the commanders of these craft were wearing smoky colored glasses. That's what they said that they were wearing, smoky colored glasses, like tinted glasses. Um, it, it sounds to me, according to Walter Bosley, that this was part of a super secret flight test group known as the Sonora Aero Club that was financed by a group of eccentric financiers back from New York. And I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to get the gold from the gold fields of Northern California back to the East Coast quickly and quietly mm. and covertly um, because it checks out. You've got the 1849 gold rush in California. Now, back in 1849, do you know how many people lived in the state of California back in 1849? Take a guess. No idea. Uh, 12,000. 12,000. Oh. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Can you believe that? So you've got the 1849 California gold rush. A few years later, well, more than a few years later, 
we start getting these reports of these mystery airships that are testing in the Sonora, California area, San Francisco, Sacramento, Oakland, that whole area. And then they start progressively heading toward the east, like they're trying to figure out a way to transport something covertly. And then we got reports from Charles Delshaw, who was an artist attached to the Sonora Aero Club, who states that there were members in the Sonora Aero Club who quote unquote figured out how to crack the gravity barrier and they were using some type of no noble gas that could negate gravity and that's where the story dies. Like a year within 1897, all the mystery airships disappeared and we don't know the backstory. We don't know where they are kept. Did they burn down? Where, where are the craft? If there's all these craft, where are they? They, it completely disappeared off the face of history. Are they in a barn somewhere? It's been well over 100 years now, right? We just don't know the full extent of the story. But when you look at the eyewitness reports, it's looking like a man-made technology. Mm. So if it's man-made, um, well, I guess there's there's a couple aspects of that, right? If you if you fall into like the, the Bob Lazar story, you think, okay, maybe these were recovered craft that were reverse engineered, or like that example you gave, maybe it was just some scientific breakthrough that was just kept under wraps. Where what side of that do you tend to lean? What what does the evidence kind of point towards? Me personally, man made hundred percent. Hundred percent. You know, you just don't get smoky colored glasses with well-dressed inventors wearing a two-piece suit and laughter and big black dogs on the deck of these craft. Mm. <laughs> now, if, if anyone wants to think it's extraterrestrial, go for it. You know, yeah. that's not what the evidence shows. That's just not what the evidence shows. Um, let's do another you case. you feel that way not. about that one-siding or about potentially I'm talking all about all the mystery airship waves of the 1897 wave. That whole 1896-1897 part, when you look at the eyewitness testimony, it doesn't appear to be an alien spacecraft, even with the high-intensity lights. Now, that is an interesting part of the story, which cannot be denied. How are they going to have the power source to have these seven beams of light shining down, like very high-powered? It's not impossible, but for that time frame, it's a little bit more difficult. But the only problem with that is, the 1865 Oaxaca, Mexico craft had the same powered spotlights as the 1897 mystery airship was. So someone, someone in the like early 1860s, they already figured it out. They already figured it out. They did it. They've done yeah. it. And, and you're saying they figured out the whole gravity aspect to they, it too? They, they apparently figured out how, a way to negate gravity because these things could go against the wind at 100 miles an hour. That's what the reports say. Now, again, it's difficult to prove that because we're so far removed from this and yeah. none of these things have ever popped up in any barn somewhere in Northern California. So where did they go? Did they all get destroyed? We just don't yeah. know. So, you know, one interesting thing that I think you always also talk about is like secret government programs and black budget. And let's assume that some of these sightings from the 50s, from the 60s are 100% humans created those aircraft regardless of where they got the technology from to begin with, if they had that technology back 70 years ago, where do you think they are today with this stuff? And how does this tie into a lot of the current events going on, the way budget's being spent? Well, I can't tell you for sure, right? Because I don't know. But if you look at movies like The Fifth Element, 
if you just keep on extrapolating the technology, if they had this in 1897 and you had 100, 120, 130 years, we've already got fifth element, you know, the scene in fifth element where there's that taxi thing and there's a big traffic jam, flying cars. uh, Yeah, certainly looks like it. Certainly looks like it. Well, does that, would you say that that means that we probably have a secret space program and potentially already interplanetary um, or do you not tend to go down and believe that kind of stuff without I can, evidence? I can neither confirm nor deny, but I would just look at the eyewitness reports of what these credible people like pilots, air traffic controllers, astronauts, cosmonauts, what are they telling us? What are they seeing? Just go back to Gordon Cooper in 51. What did he see? He saw metallic 60-foot diameter dish-shaped craft that were silvery, you know, look to the eye. They had a dome on top. They could not be intercepted. This is back in 51. Then you go to 57 where a similar craft landed, you know, right within the vicinity of the dry lake bed. It had landing gear. Then you go to the 1976 Calusa, California, where they're breaking the sound barrier. And then you track that with the 83 case where the woman saw rivets and beams on the inside. You put that all together, it certainly looks like things have been built. They don't have to tell us, right? They don't have to tell us. But just going by what these credible eyewitnesses are telling us, someone's made a breakthrough. I see. When you when you mentioned that, I'm going back to a, something you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, but you said like 90 degree angles are never seen in nature. Um, very rarely are they seen. They are. It does happen, but not not very often. You don't see that. Yeah. You know? Have you have you done any looking into uh, that apparent monolith that was on the fo- moon Phobos of Mars? Mm, um, and that like seems pretty 90 degrees, right? I suppose so. You know, maybe there could be something there. Who knows? Um, Maybe there's someone living there that we don't know about. I don't know. I'm sure they know. I'm sure, you know, they're probably not going to tell us. Uh, If you go back to the Brookings report that talked about during the course of our exploration of the outer planets and solar system, if we came across an extraterrestrial artifact, it would be in the best interest of the public to delay publication and not tell the people because anytime a high-tech civilization comes into contact with a lower contact uh, technologically advanced civilization it's always the lower one that comes out the bad end of it right so it was their plan back in the 60s to just don't even bother telling us so we're not going to know we're not going to know yeah isn't there a um, Warner Von Braun deathbed confession, apparently where he talks about how they have this technology um, uh, and, you know, that there there's going to be eventually like false flag invasions or something like well, that. Well, that's what was stated to Carol Rosen. So we have to go by her quote, you know, and we're, we're still looking for that now. We could be on the verge of something like that happening now. Difficult to say the timeline, but uh, that's what uh, Carol Rosen had said. And it's kind of rung true all these years. And it's, we, we appear to be on the timeline. Interesting. Um, and I guess what are some of the ne- negative implications of, you know, all this stuff that we've been talking about? Like um, what, what, what keeps like, what, what fascinates you so much about like the connection between 
making this, you know, seeing if it's man-made and I guess, what is it, what is, what is your, some of your projecting forward? Like, what are some of your thoughts about where we're going with this? You know, I just think that we've got to go back to Gordon Cooper. When Gordon Cooper told Daryl Miklos that we're a hundred years behind where we should be a hundred years behind. Um, now he tried to tell the public about this. He set up something called CAT, C-A-T, Center for Advanced Technology. And one way that they tried to reveal this to the public, and maybe you can guess, in Florida, there's something very interesting that a lot of people like to go to on vacation. And it has a very interesting name that's actually an, an acronym. People go here on vacation. Can you think of what I'm talking about? <laughs> Uh, no, it's in the state of Florida and it's a, it's a, it's a Disney world. You're close. It's a travel uh, destination for sure. For sure. It's uh, Epcot. I'm not sure. Epcot. Epcot. Okay. Epcot that is Disney stands world, right? for experimental prototype community of tomorrow. That's what that stands for. Gordon mm. Cooper was instrumental in the original origin and development of Epcot center. And he was trying to get some of that technology out to the public. And he kind of secretly encrypted that into Epcot. So when you go to Epcot and you see all this advanced technology, just remember that it was Gordon Cooper that played a role in getting that put into that, uh, that travel destination. And so again, and, we, and that tracks with what he was saying, that we're 100 years behind where we should be. He knows. He knows. What do you think it would take for that technology to eventually be used for advancing civilization and outdoing some of these old school combustion fuel things, you know? Well, see, that's where the problem lies, right? Because the utilities are a, a $500 trillion business every year, right? If we were to use the technologies that Gordon Cooper had talked about at Epcot Center, in his uh, Center for Advanced Technologies, then we wouldn't need internal combustion engines anymore. We wouldn't need tankers anymore. We wouldn't need uh, oil fields anymore. We wouldn't need nuclear power plants anymore. <laughs> Overnight, all these utilities would go out of business. That's why we're not seeing it. That's why we're not seeing it. But that's what Gordon Cooper had talked about. He talked about yeah. being 100 years behind where we should be right now. So then doesn't that kind of mean that we're always going to just be stuck at this ceiling to exactly. some degree? Exactly. Remember what Tupac said. Remember what Tupac said. Uh, basically, he said, he said, it's a setup. It's a setup. And he's right. It's a setup. The whole thing is a setup. What are we setting up for, though? Well, they, they want to keep us broke. Keep us broke and keep us busy and keep us from thinking independently. That's yeah. the goal. Because if we start thinking about what Gordon Cooper talked about, then we're going to band together as a united coalition. And that isn't going to happen, right? They can't let that happen. So that's why we have a perpetual wars and perpetual, quote unquote, energy shortages. It's all a setup. Just like, just like Tupac said, it's all a setup. He so essentially he what you're saying is it would take an act of God for something like this <laughs> to become made available. Well, I'm not going to say, but... Who knows? Uh, I just, I wish we could get to that level. We'd move the whole world further along. 
but yet yeah. we're going to be struggling behind, struggling behind. Yeah. Do you know that it's been 52 years since the 747 first flew back in 69? And we're not flying any faster now than we did 52 years ago. What's wrong with this picture? I mean, you can, you can yeah. fly in a 747 today that first flew in 69, and we're not flying one mile an hour faster now than we did 52 years ago. Something's wrong with that picture. Wow. Interesting. You know, along the same lines, you know, Elon or not Elon Musk, uh, Nikola Tesla, you know, famously had a career, obviously went down. He died a broke man in a hotel right. room. Right. Um, but then there's also all these like theories that he had major breakthroughs that were kind of silenced and hush hush. Right. And he talked about if you think of the world in vibration, frequency and magnetism, I believe is what he said, it, then it, you'll see like it just completely opens up a new realm. And then I immediately think back to, you know, things like the Philadelphia experiment. Do you think the government has, has experimented with things like that? And is the Philadelphia experiment, is that something you've looked into at all? Well, getting back to your comment about Elon Musk, personally, I believe that the whole Tesla car and everything Tesla we're hearing all about, it's a hoax. It's a scam. And I'll tell you why. If Tesla were here today, I got a plane passing over. If Tesla were alive today and he went to Elon Musk, he would disapprove. And I'll tell you why. Because Tesla's real car would never have something where you plug in, right? He would be pulling electricity from the atmosphere itself with no plug-in or power cord whatsoever. It would be pulling electricity from the air. That's a real Tesla. What we're seeing with Elon Musk and the Tesla, that's not a Tesla. Nikola Tesla yeah. would not approve of what Elon Musk is building for everyone at 80,000 or pop. But does anybody even have the ability to do that? Like, could Elon Musk even do that if he wanted to? I think he probably could. He probably could. There's, Why I mean, we can transfer then? cell signals from one cell phone to the other. Why can't we do that with electricity? I'm sure there's a way. After all this R&D, you know, we, we still are dependent on a power cord. There is no way Nikola Tesla would buy off on that. He would say, nope, get rid of the power cord. I want you to design for me something that pulls electricity right outside the vacuum, right, you know, right from the, right from the atmosphere. Then you could drive anywhere. You wouldn't need it. Or like he had that, uh, the, the tower that he was doing back in New York, and he was going to power the world with no wires, no transformer, no nothing, bypass all that nonsense. You know, because when you have a power station and you've got all these power lines and, and uh, transformers, and by the time it gets to you in your home, you're losing like 80% of efficiency. Tesla was going to bypass all that. He was going to devise a system where you pull the electricity from the atmosphere and then you can drive unlimited anywhere. That's a real Tesla. Yeah. Well, did, did that technology ever get completed? Um, it, it was completed to a certain degree, but then the funding was pulled because Westinghouse and uh, Edison figured out that he was giving the power away for free. And they couldn't charge for it anymore. And we can't have that. And so now we're 100 years behind where we should be. Exactly what Gordon Cooper had said. Hmm. So even if that technology existed and it was completed to today, it seems like you believe that Elon Musk 
could get access to that if he really wanted to, or you think he could just figure it out if he wanted to with the funding? I think with the brilliant minds that we have today, there could be a shielding device built in. Now, hey, I'm not an electrical engineer. I don't know, but there's a way to do it. There's a way to do it without, you know, shocking or putting a, a very high electrical voltage charge along the skin of the craft. Um, I'm sure there's a way to just drop it right into. Now, you wouldn't have, I don't even know if you'd have batteries to charge, really. It would just be electrical engines at that point, electrical motors. Maybe it would charge a battery, but you wouldn't need to plug it in, that's for sure. You, you can get, guarantee yourself that if, if Nikola Tesla came back to life today, he would not sign off on what Musk is doing. No way. Interesting. Um, yeah, and Elon Musk, he's, I mean, he's definitely revolutionizing to some degree. Do you think he's involved with the government at all in, you know, some of the advanced aerospace technologies? Well, it, it doesn't appear to be the case because he's still using liquid rockets, right? He's still right. building liquid rockets, but we've already proven, we've already shown back in 1966 that they didn't even need rockets in 66. And if they didn't need it in 66, there was at least a 10-year development program to get to that point. So that means it tracks back to mid-1955 or October 1954. That tracks with the newspaper clippings that they were working hard to crack the gravity barrier. It all tracks. If you look at the timelines here, everything lines up perfectly. So what that means is, did we really need Challenger to explode on January 28, 1986? Did we really need the Apollo fire where the three astronauts were killed in the Apollo fire? What about Columbia? Did we really need that to happen? If we had this technology in 1966 where we weren't using liquid rockets and we can get to space and we're using an advanced propulsion system, why are we still using these obsolete dinosaur rockets and risking the lives of our astronauts? Why are we doing this? Why are we a hundred years behind where we should be? It's like we are a lost civilization and someone else or some other group has just completely leapfrogged us all together and left us all behind. That's what it looks like. Hmm. So then what would be the motivation? Like, I guess there's a couple things, right? It, it could come down to the motivation or it could come down to just like decentralization. So what do you think it is? You think it's someone on top saying, we can't let this out or do you think it's just so decentralized that they could it's like it would be impossible for everybody to come together and put this out for the greater good they want to be masters of the universe they want to be masters of the universe power control masters of the universe but at, at what point do you say is enough is enough like if you have a hundred trillion do you really need another hundred trillion at that point i mean why bother at that point why yeah. not just bring everybody along together what's what's the point you've already got you can already buy islands you can already buy continents what more power and control could you possibly want that's the thing you know like why can't we move together and all be raised you know like when the tide comes in all ships raise together why can't yeah. we just do that they don't see it that way though they don't see it that way so you seem to believe that it is maybe just one group that's kind of calling all the shots behind the scenes it looks like that. It could be a small coalition of groups, but it's not a it's not a large number for sure. It's a small group that's controlling mm -hmm. things. You know, it's a small group at the top. Who who would be in charge of that? You think it's uh, government, U.S. government? Don't know. Don't know. 
Don't know. That's what we're all trying to find out, right? Who's who's pulling the strings in all this? Yeah. But again, going going back to the utilities, if you have a technology that renders the oil industry, the solar industry, all the windmills, the wind power, the nuclear power plants, if if you have something that renders all that obsolete overnight, no way are they going to release that. No way, because they can still make billions now, right? Why would they want to put themselves out of business? They're going to lose trillions. So they're going to do whatever it takes to keep this under wraps. Interesting. Well, I think you've given us so much of your insights today. Um, was there any cases that you wanted to share as kind of like a last second thing to, to yeah, get sure, out? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a case that was given to me by David Marler. Now, David Marler is the premier researcher on triangular UFOs. This did not get into his book called Triangular UFOs. So it was given to me personally. He gave me, so this credit goes to David Marler. Okay, so the date is 2012. Let's see if I can move this up here. And the eyewitness, actually this took place at Little Putting River. This is in Oregon. Here's his original sketch. He ends up seeing this strange triangular shaped UFO about 180 feet across. It has rounded edges. It's kind of triangular shaped. And what he recorded, and I've got a three page report that discusses this all together. Here's the rendering we came up with. Let's see if I can go this way, it might be easier to see. Uh, what he sees is this strange craft. And on the bottom of it, you can see there's this eight foot diameter clear transparent pipe that goes down and makes contact with the river. It starts sucking up water. And then on the direct sides of this transparent tube, it starts spraying water down. At that very second, there are three safety release valves that pop off from the bottom of this craft and they start pumping water out as well. Now, while all this is going, this original eyewitness said that he heard this washing machine noise, like a kerchunk, kerchunk noise while all mm. this is going on. And then he said, uh, you know, Knight Rider, right? The TV series Knight Rider. I've heard of where it, yeah. Michael Knight is riding in this Pontiac uh, Firebird and it has oh, yeah. that red light that goes from back and forth. That's what this thing looked like. It had this red light. Mm. And then he said that it had these white orbs surrounding this whole thing. Now, when this thing was done, it retracted the tube, these uh, safety relief valves, they retracted into the bottom of the craft, and then this thing slowly departed, but it, it stood there for 15 minutes hovering over the river. It was long enough for him to go downtown, reach the sheriff's station. The sheriff came back and he saw it too. So it was secondary independent eyewitness of this particular case. And this is back in 2012. Wow. If you, if you got lucky enough to see uh, a UFO or a USO, what would have to happen for you to believe that it was extraterrestrial? Would you automatically assume it was man-made or would you go, I'm going to assume there's a high percent chance that it was man-made? I'd look for seams. I'd look for rivets. I'd look for hatches. I'd look for tubes, pipes, and cylinders. I'd look for prongs or protrusions. I'd look for any lighting patterns, and I'd, I'd also look for and listen for a low-frequency electrical humming noise, and then also kind of like a static electrical field around the local vicinity. If I saw one, two, or three of those, I'd be more inclined to think it's man-made. If this thing was seamless and it wasn't making any noise, it had no lights, it was almost like an egg-shaped craft that had no 
protrusions whatsoever, now we could be looking at something different. But even mm. then we don't know for sure, right? Because is it live or is it Memorex? We can't tell now because it's, it's yeah. seamless at this point. They're good. These guys are good. So you'd almost have to physically see and, and meet whatever was driving this thing. And it would have to tell you, I'm from this planet, oh. not here. It could be an unmanned aerial vehicle. It could be completely unmanned. Then we'd never know, right? We just don't know. But right. yeah, I would look for those telltale signs. If I didn't see any of that, I'd take it to a next tier and try to find out the flight path, find out if it's making any CE2 effects to it. Beyond that, now we're looking at something that could be different. Because again, if you go back to that Hubble image and there's 400 billion galaxies in the known universe, hmm, the chances of something yeah. being out there just keep getting higher and higher. Yeah. Do you think the Tic Tac that was seen by off the coast of San Diego, do you think that was man-made from the evidence you've seen? I think it's man-made, but I can't prove it. Yeah. I think it's What gives you that instinct? Just the fact that they're toying with our F-18 pilots. They're just like toying with them and, you know, like flying between them and... <laughs> It just sounds like they're playing games and, you know, they're not going to alert everybody in the Navy. If they want to do yeah. something, they're not going to say it. Yeah. Well, if, if it was extraterrestrial, how do you think they would have acted differently? You think they would have just ran away, shot it down? Like they um, might've, they might've stayed their distance. They might've, you know, kind of like observed from a distance, but these things like were interacting with the pilots flying between the pilots. Uh, to me, that's a shot over the bow. It sounds man-made to me. Interesting. Well, if anybody wanted to check out more of the information you have, I'm sure they could find find you on pretty much any UFO, ancient aliens, right? But is there a specific like hub or place that you like to send people? Well, I do have a book called Dark Files, A Pictorial History of Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters. Uh, it's on Amazon. You can type in Dark Files, my name, it'll pop up. It's very reasonable. You know, this is definitely not a money-making scheme. Uh, you make a couple bucks. I mean, no big deal. I just like to make these cases come alive. And I think that it's important to preserve an important part of our national history. And that's why I put that book together. Yeah. And I definitely respect a lot of the work that you do too. And I, I, I actually like the fact that you're coming from a, from like a scientific perspective and you like to try to make it fit into something we can't explain before we just go way off into sure. other realms. Yeah. Let's, which, let's, let's drill down on what we know first, then we'll take it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And you know, I'll put the link down for your book down in the description sure. below for, so people can check that out if they're checking out this podcast, but thank you so much, Michael, for coming on the thank podcast you. and uh, hopefully maybe you. in the future, we'll get you back for a round two. Sounds good. Thanks a lot.